You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Cisco shares under pressure. That's after delivering a disappointing outlook again, along with plans to cut thousands of jobs. We have the story. Plus, Coinbase earnings out after the bell, but shares jumped this morning after receiving an upgrade from JP Morgan. Bitcoin holding above $52,000 will break down the numbers. And hedge funds buy into some of the biggest names in tech in the fourth quarter. Amazon, Intel, NVIDIA are among some of the favorites. That was revealed in yesterday's 13F filings. I'm going to walk through the winners and the losers. But first, let's check in on a key loser that is a mover on the day. Some breaking news. Temenos, based over in Europe, confident, it says, the company. This is a software technology story in the finance space. So it's confident in the strength of their operations, of their financial cash position as well. This is after a short note was put out on the company. Six, that's the benchmark manager over in Switzerland saying that Temenos is suspended from trading until further notice. We'll have more on that story as and when needed. But for the time being, let's get back to the macro picture of what's happening in US trading. Aside from what's happening in Europe, we're off by two-tenths percent on the Nasdaq. Some big tech names just rolling over, coming off a record highs and we're pulling down. Two-year yield, though, actually managing to dive a little bit. And this is as we get that retail data that showed that not everything is quite as rosy in the US economy. Retail sales just falling that little bit lower in January under what had been anticipated. Maybe the Fed does cut in the second quarter. Yields fall. I'm looking at what's happening in the dollar versus the Japanese yen. Dollar under pressure across the board, all the G10 currencies, but notable even against the yen. Now, this is as we see Japanese economy as a whole fall into a recession, and the yen has been under pressure of late. Let's move on and have a little look at what's happening in the great world of crypto, because we're going to dive so much more into ecosystem, the VC money going into crypto a little bit later in the show. But for now, we're coming off of our highs, but we're still above $52,000 when it comes to the OG that is Bitcoin. Ed, what have you got on the micro? 
uh, a lot going on. Let's start with Cisco cutting jobs. Cisco is revising its full year guidance. The story, customers are worried about the economy. They're pulling back on networking spending. Um, we'll get more details on that later in the program. I would say Cisco is not down as much as it had been earlier in the session. Alphabet parent of Google, also interesting. One of the big movers to the downside, the information is reporting that OpenAI is working on its own search, powered by Bing, not drawing a direct link, but there seems to be some pressure resulting from that story. NVIDIA, one of the interesting stories of the 13F situation, they're putting money into a lot of the ecosystem that their AI accelerators are supporting. We'll dig into that. And finally, Amazon. I put those there because basically when I last checked, NVIDIA jumped above Amazon in the ranking of biggest companies by market cap. It's a pretty close run race right now. But when you compare them in terms of revenue, it's just such a fascinating story. And with NVIDIA earnings on deck next week, that is certainly one where we have to think about the valuation. DoorDash is the other one after market. The gig economy has been the story of the week. DoorDash reports, it's up 1.75%. Does it benefit from the same things that Uber and Lyft told us in the last seven days or so, Kara? That's what we've got to focus in on. We've got the perfect guest to really talk us through some of the key earnings still to come and that have been in the past. Of course, Mark Mahaney is joining us on the array that has been tech. Let's just start on Dash. Push us forward. It seems as though the consumer's resilient and so some of these gig economy companies are resilient. Caroline, I think that's right. I think your interpretation is correct. That's sort of what we learned from Uber and Lyft. Um, uh, now, these are all marketplaces. And so you've got to focus on two things, the consumer demand, um, dynamics and also the supply dynamics. But uh, the read throughs there, I think, were sort of equally positive. Uh, uh, Lyft and Uber talked about 25, 30% rise in number of drivers on a year over year basis drivers, couriers, couriers in the case of uh, Uber Eats, uh, Uber Delivery. So, um, and, and that's for a variety of different reasons. But I do think that the services have just become better working experiences. Uh, there's uh, uh, there's been a lot of uh, technical improvements in terms of the app for the couriers, for the drivers. And I think the economics have gotten better. There's better pay to be had. So uh, anyway, all of that should come through. We should see it in uh, DoorDash's numbers uh, tonight. Now, this company's going to give forward-year guidance. And, uh, you know, companies are usually conservative when they give forward-year guidance. So that could be a, a risk factor here. But I think the overall macro trend, I think, is positive for, for DoorDash. And the gig economy trends, I think, are specifically very positive for DoorDash. Mark, there is one story that everyone has been talking about in the past 24 hours. It is the case of the errant zero. Have a listen to this really quick. Look at the growth. Look at the fundamentals of the financials. And to be very clear, this was it was a bad error, but it was one zero in a press release. And, you know, a lot of other pages. Uh, and of course, we corrected it within seconds of finding it. So I think, you know, like with any mistake, I think it's not so much about the mistake itself. It's also about how you correct for it. And we've corrected for it, obviously, in the moment, putting out new materials, but also doing a really deep uh, process dive, including having our own internal audit team, a separate team, look and figure out how we can make sure we never make a mistake like this again. That was David Risher, the Lyft CEO, talking to us yesterday, Mark. Have you ever seen anything like that in your career? No, I, I haven't. Uh, and I remember, you know, looking at the press release, looking at the 500 bips of guided margin expansion, and then hearing the CFO talk about 50 bips, and I whirled around in my chair and said, wait, there's a problem here. Uh, but no, I haven't. But look, it's a mistake, and I think David's comments were right, which is, we all make mistakes. That's 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 not terribly interesting. What's interesting is how people react to them and whether they you know, come out flat. 
admit that they made a mistake and correct it. I think they did a decent job of uh, of doing that. It's it's uh, it's unfortunate, but you know the markets at the end of the day is kind of look through this. I mean, the margins are still improving. Uh, and uh, and the demand trends are, are, are better, and there are focusing on free cash flow. I mean, um, that's the, the just a, there's a profitability inflection point here. All of these businesses, if you give them enough scale, you give them enough revenue growth, they'll get the profitability. People were very uncertain about that uh, when the IPOs and Lyft and Uber occurred back in 2019. Even more uncertain during COVID, but it's come through. These companies have grown. Their bases have built up. Their driver supply has improved. They're, 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 they're their uh, consumer demand is improved, and through all of that, profits are starting to really show up, and, uh, yeah. and investors are reacting very positively that they should be. Chez didn't react positively to Airbnb, Mark. I know you've been looking at that particular company and deciding whether ultimately it should be a long-term bet or not. What do you make of Airbnb as it does see just a little bit of cooling in demand? Well, it's the highest multiple stock in travel. It trades like 30 times, 35 times earnings. I do prefer booking. A BKNG, and I do prefer Expedia, EXPE, to Airbnb. Airbnb's results were fine. They had a, they, they, we thought they were going to have to warn about their March quarter, and they did. But that was because you had a real tough comp. You had a pull forward of demand beginning of 2023 that people just had to remember. And why did you have a pull forward of demand in early 2023? Because everybody wanted to travel, but this was in a, by, by Western standards, it was high inflation environments, and so people booked early so that they could avoid price spikes during the summer. Those price spikes, by the way, didn't happen, but people were concerned about it early on in the year, so you had pull forward of demand, created tough comps. But as we go through the year, I think Airbnb's fine. The growth is what are you? Oh, a technical difficulty. Yep. Mark, I think we... Oh, you're back. And that's the Olympics, and Airbnb will benefit uh, Mark, we lost you for a second there, but that gave me a chance to look at my Bloomberg terminal. Alphabet, parent of Google, is the biggest points drag on the NASDAQ 100 this morning. The story the information is reporting is that OpenAI is coming with its own search, partly powered by Bing. The stock seems to be reacting. We're down 3% on the A shares. What do you make of that? You know, Alphabet's a company you cover. I'd be surprised if OpenAI, with an integrated search engine with Bing, would really take away search share from Google. You'd have to do a lot of things to take away search share from Google. You'd have to come up with a much better search product. You can't just have a Me Too product. So if Google's going to trade off 3%, I'd probably buy the stock just based on that. I think that correction will be corrected. Uh, But we'll see. There's more competition, arguably, now for Google Search. I just think Google Search has continued to improve. I think some of these Gemini uh, uh, features that they're rolling out are going to improve Google Search. So... I'll take the other side of uh, a 3% correction on market share fears for Google. Mark, we just have 30 seconds. Of the ginormous universe of tech companies you cover, who won earnings period so far? Amazon and especially Meta. Everybody's spending more on Meta today, and margins and profits are rising there dramatically. Uh, Meta looks like a really well-positioned company in stock for 24. All right, ever course, Mark Mahaney. And as I said, a massive universe of different technology companies covered. That's why I love having you on the show. Thank you very much. Cisco's the backbone of the internet, as you know. And their routers, network, server, business, these things, their switches are truly important to bringing in cash flow, but the future is in services. 
That was David Barnson there, CIO of the Barnson Group. And the thing is, things didn't really transpire that way. He was speaking 24 hours ago, but last night, Cisco out with some pretty negative news, cutting headcount by 5%, revising their full year guidance and saying, our customers are worried about the economy. So they're pulling back on spending. And at the same time, that, that ripple effect from AI, it's just not there for Cisco. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Brody Ford out in New York City. I mean, for me, that was the story. The difference between networking and infrastructure, the, the hyperscalers data center, Cisco's not quite there yet. Yeah, I think this is a song we have heard before that corporate customers are a little worried. You know, Cisco said that they bought all this stuff over the last couple of quarters, right? All of this uh, infrastructure for servers and internet, and they're saying, wait, let me install all this stuff before I buy more because that looming recession could still be there. So yeah, those corporate IT budgets, as much as people have said that they are coming back, it's clear from Cisco that folks are still a little bit anxious. And what's interesting is last quarter they missed, stock fell, and Chuck Robbins said, I wish I could blame the macro, but I'm not going to. Whereas <laughs> right. this time he kind of blamed the macro, yeah. and he's not blaming a big acquisition that they made. Yeah, absolutely. $28 billion for Splunk. It is on the way. It has not closed yet. Uh, big companies will often say that mergers don't necessarily re cause job reductions. It seems like they usually do, right? I mean, they're about to bring in a couple thousand workers from Splunk. There's going to be overlap there. And I think most people watching this say that this is kind of preempting some of that overlap. We're in an environment where companies want to keep profits as high as they can, keep expenses low. I would expect part of this is due to that Splunk acquisition. And Splunk have been laying off workers as well in anticipation, yep. maybe, or just reacting to how the market is. And just fold in whether if they are blaming macro this time, how much also just people have just sat on a lot of gear and yep. haven't deployed it yet, ultimately. Absolutely. Hardware, it takes time to install, right? I mean, there was a period where there's all these backlogs and people couldn't get the things they needed, whether that was in routers or computers. That eased up and people started buying. They said, let me get it while I can, right? Um, and I think now they're sitting on a lot of this stuff and they're not wanting to buy more. At least that's the narrative we heard during the earnings call last night. The numbers are that they've revised their full-year sales guidance down by around two to three billion dollars. Five percent headcount trim is about four thousand staff. So it's it's not severe, but it doesn't inspire confidence. Tell us about the partnership with Nvidia because I think there is some optimism from the sell side analysts this morning that that might plot them a path forward. Yes, there is some optimism there, but I will also say that if I wanted to count off all the companies I've heard of with partnerships with NVIDIA, I wouldn't have enough fingers, right? I mean, it's hard <laughs> to tell exactly how much uplift we get oh, here. Oh, Brody Ford. Um, <laughs> Keep going, sorry. You're right. No, no. no. Uh, another funny wrinkle here is that in the networking space, Cisco has been unquestioned for a long time. We have another funny merger coming, HPE and Juniper, and they expressly say that we are doing this to take on Cisco. Um, I think that will take you know, a number of quarters to see whether that really hurts them or not, but I think that is another wrinkle here that there is a looming competitive concern. So one more thing to consider here. Maybe NVIDIA can't save them. Oh, NVIDIA not to the rescue this time. It has been to the rescue of certain share prices today of others that we'll dig into in a bit later. Brody Ford. Thank you. Always a joy to have on the show. Meanwhile, coming up, AI startup, AI startup Lambda. It's now to $1.5 billion valuation, its latest funding round. Its CEO is going to be joining us, Stefan Balaban, joining us next, Ed. But you've got something to look ahead to.
Yeah, super micro. This speaks to every story we've just covered. The stock is now up 236% year to date, 9% in the session. Bank of America initiating coverage with a buy rating, 1,040 price target. This is basically what Cisco is not. It's everything in the data center and the server design apart from the AI accelerator itself. So they're a real beneficiary of the infrastructure build out we're seeing. And they've massively outperformed every index, even NVIDIA, by many factors. Uh, and so this is one that we want to talk about more, super microcomputing, up 9%. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Time now for Talking Tech. And first up, a SpaceX rocket has blasted off in the middle of the night, aiming to make the first touchdown of a US-made spacecraft on the moon in 50 years. Called Nova Sea, the spacecraft built in Houston is based Initiative Machines, the company behind it, and will make its touchdown attempt on February 22nd. Meanwhile, chipmaker Renesas agreed to buy software firm Altium for nearly $6 billion, the biggest acquisition yet for the Australian-listed company by a Japanese buyer. Now, Renesas, which is a Toyota supplier, is looking to lower its reliance on making automotive chips. Plus, Taiwan's stock benchmark surged to its highest level on record, boosted by what? Expectations of strong AI demand. The TIEX rallied, that's as TSMC, which has a weighting of around 30% of the index, reported its January sales, and they rose almost 8% from a year ago. It really is propelling the chipmaker's market cap to a record, $575 billion. It's enough to surpass Visa to become the world's 12th most valuable company. Ed, what have you got on AI? Okay, Lambda, which provides cloud computing services and computers to train AI software, is announcing a Series C funding round, $320 million, valuing the company at $1.5 billion. The financing was led by billionaire Thomas Tools, US Innovative Technology, and includes participation from the likes of B Capital, SK Telecom, as well as Bloomberg Beta, the venture capital arm of Bloomberg, Bloomberg LP, of course, the parent company of Bloomberg Television. Let's bring in Lambda CEO, Stephen, Stephen Balaban to join us for more. Let's go back to basics. What is it that Lambda does? What do you build and what do you offer? Lambda is an AI compute platform 
we have GPU servers, GPU workstations, and a GPU cloud service that we provide to AI developers. And so this money is a significant Series C. We've done a lot on this show about the build-out and AI infrastructure. We're literally talking server designs going into data centers normally run by the hyperscalers. What are you going to take that cash and do with it? Well, we're going to be deploying tens of thousands of new NVIDIA GPUs into our data center and to and providing those GPUs as part of our cloud service. Okay, go back to the origin story here, Stephen, because it's an interesting one. You weren't always in this game. In fact, you were making facial recognition technology and, and ways in which I could augment my face via AI. And then your own bills for your own cloud consumption got too high. So tell us that. Yeah, so Lambda started off as a face and image recognition software development company. So we were AI engineers ourselves. And we ended up getting a really high cloud service bill. And we figured, you know what? It was a lot more cost effective for us to redesign and reimagine what an AI cloud should look like in the age of training neural networks and inferencing neural networks. And so that's how we pivoted into the cloud business that we're in today. And Stephen, I really want to try and understand competitors versus frenemies. I find it very hard to basically get to grips with who you're servicing, who your clients are, because it looks as though some of your clients are even some of the hyperscalers that ultimately you're going in competition with. Can you just tell us how ultimately you think the lay of the land will look like in five years' time? Yeah, so Lambda's customers include you know, trillion dollar uh, market cap, Fortune 500 companies, uh, companies that are major enterprises like Rakuten who are integrating AI into their products and services and venture backed startup companies like AnyScale. And so, you know, we really primarily provide and cater towards that AI developer. And that's that's who, who we've been um, basically providing our services to. Steve, I'm just really interested on the hardware side of this story. So, you know, I, I'm assuming that you guys are building out your infrastructure with DGX or HGX, right? The, the broader server design. But what's happening right now in 2024 remarkably quickly is we're kind of moving from this focus on training to inference and, and understanding the, the energy and compute load for inference. Do you then start looking elsewhere at like AMD, their MI300X? How do you transition your own footprint in business? So look, today Lambda is exclusively providing NVIDIA GPUs. And the reason for that is because that's what the market's demanding, right? You know, it's 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 very simple. Um, we are a compute provider that technically speaking and from our software architecture and our software platform is agnostic to what the underlying accelerator platform is. But so far today, we've been pure NVIDIA. Let's look at the valuation and let's look at the money you raised. Valuation is, is high. Talk to me about the, the reality of your business from a revenue generation standpoint, which markets you operate in outside of North America, the number of customers you have. I think we're just, we're learning about you and we're thinking, well, hold on, this sounds like you're a really key part of the system. So Lambda's been pretty under the radar, but we have over 10,000 customers. In fiscal year 2022, we did over $100 million of shipped gap revenue. Last year, we did over $237 million of shipped revenue. So we, we already have a pretty substantial business. And in terms of valuation, I think that you're looking at 
these these revenue multiples and you're probably thinking wow that's actually quite reasonable given the growth given the customer base and given the just sheer amount of revenue we have lambda ceo Stephen Balaban, thank you so much for your time on the talks thank of the you. fundraise, what you're going to be deploying it on. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. I want to focus in on crypto for a minute, and in particular, Bitcoin. What else? We're above 52,000 US dollars per token. There is some momentum here from the, the Lunar New Year. There is a concentration on the data around net flows into the spot ETFs that are available. Um, and as we discussed on this show, some people are thinking about the imminent halving that's coming in April. But this is the highest level since December of 2021. We've been at that level for a few days now. Kind of interesting. That is on the, the pure risk asset, asset that is Bitcoin. On the equity side and crypto-related stocks, we're zeroed in on Coinbase, partly because Coinbase reports after market. And I think there's an expectation here that Wall Street might get surprised with profit in Coinbase's case. I always look at the chart and there is quite clearly a close correlation at the moment between the trading we see in Coinbase, the movement that we see in Bitcoin. But JP Morgan, one of the more bearish names on Coinbase, ditched a very short-lived call that they had on the stock earlier. I want to go to DC and bring in Bloomberg's Kaylee Lyons. I mean, that for me is a lot of different stories, but Coinbase really in focus today. Yeah, absolutely. To your point about how short-lived this JP Morgan Morgan bearish call was the call was just made on January 23rd, essentially saying that Coinbase was going to suffer because enthusiasm around these spot Bitcoin ETFs was going to deflate and that would lead to lower volumes, therefore lower revenue potentially for Coinbase. What we have seen, though, and you were just speaking of it, is instead a rally in not just Bitcoin, but Ethereum as well. Bitcoin's above $52,000. And so today, JP Morgan is actually saying that is as you have these higher prices, that is going to translate into better business for Coinbase as an exchange because the higher uh, volume you have obviously more activity and higher value when you're deriving a fee based on value all of that could add up to a more positive earnings picture for the company. And of course, we're going to get detail into what exactly that earnings picture really looks like after the bell today. As you said, most analysts do still expect Coinbase is going to post a loss. The average analyst estimate is a loss of about uh, $16 million or so. But there are some who actually think that we could see a surprise profit, including Oppenheimer and Needham, which is looking for net income of about $103 million. So we'll see if we are indeed surprised come a few hours from now. Uh, Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines, one of the hosts of Bloomberg Crypto, which honestly is a show that you really need to be plugged into right now. Great to catch up for you out of DC. Cara, what do you got? We're on crypto. SEC Chair Gary Gansler, he sat down with our own David Weston to explain his reasoning behind all of those approvals of those Bitcoin ETFs, spot Bitcoin ones. Take a listen. Several years ago, back in 2021, there was a product that went live, so to speak. Um, uh, an exchange-traded fund wrapped around these Bitcoin futures at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And then a different set of products came to us and asked to list on the stock exchanges. And while we had denied like two dozen of these over about five years, a court in, in Washington said, no, they thought we had not gotten that right and they remanded it back to us. And I thought the, the, the really the most sustainable thing forward was to approve these given the court ruling. Um, in terms of the statistics, we really do look out to ensure as best we can there's not fraud manipulation. But one of the challenges on the Bitcoin markets, David, is so much of it's traded on trading platforms that are non-compliant 
with our laws. Now, Bitcoin's not a security, but they're trading on those platforms a lot of other crypto tokens without prejudging anyone, but be careful, um, that uh, with hundreds of other crypto tokens on there, likely there's other uh, securities. And we, we're in court in a number of these cases in front of various judges and panels. And, um, and so the American public, when you're investing in something like Bitcoin, to be aware, one, it's a highly speculative asset. Number two, it's generally trading on some platform that is not fully compliant with the securities laws for other things they're doing. And number three I would mention is think about what use case. What is the actual use case? When you buy 100 shares of XYZ stock, you kind of know what's behind that company, what the there there is. SEC Chair Gary Gensler. And, well, we can stick to all things Bitcoin ETFs, the approvals that have prompted some optimism throughout the entire crypto ecosystem, basically. And it's been accompanied, therefore, by an uptick in funding, in VC funding, after six quarters of decline. Pleased to say, PitchBook's fourth quarter crypto report is out today, and we can speak with the analysts behind it. Robert Lay joining us for more. And, well, let's pick up where Gary Gensler left off, because you actually highlight within the report perhaps some of the regulatory uncertainties that hang over these crypto-native exchanges. I'm thinking particularly of the decentralized exchanges. You up and the like. How is that affecting optimism or not in ultimately backing these companies and seeing them grow? Yeah, I think, look, investors have looked at these, um, you know, centralized exchanges and seen what's happened over the last, you know, 18 months or so. FTX. Yep. A lot of the bad actors have been flushed out. Are there more bad actors out there? Possibly. But, you know, I think investors feel a lot more confident in, in, in how they can assess and, and uh, diligence these bad actors. You know, they really have the toolkits to do that now. So we know that regulations are going to come. And, you know, that, that is a big challenge for investors, especially here in the U.S. So, you know, the last time we spoke, probably six, eight months ago, I said the regulation arbitrage isn't really there yet. You're starting to see that now. Mm -hmm. So the longer that we have the, you know, this regulatory uncertainty here in the U.S., we're going to start seeing more innovation continue to move abroad. And you speak to investors and you look at all the, a lot of the big investments in, in Q4, they happen outside of the U.S. So investors, they're traveling the world now. They, you know, they're not sitting in San Francisco comfortable having founders come to their offices anymore. Not in the crypto space. They're traveling around and they're going to conferences in Europe and in Asia to meet these founders. And that's what you're seeing. So, you know, the regulation is going to be a pretty difficult aspect. And, you know, it's going to be a big concern here in the U.S. But then, you know, if, if, that's, if, if the, the legislation doesn't happen here, regulators, doesn't get their act together here, then, then investors are going to find opportunities elsewhere. And the opportunities they're finding abroad, and maybe even here in New York, as Chris Dixon would like to say from A16C's crypto, what are you, what sort of things are being built? It feels as though a lot of it is back on Bitcoin since the spot Bitcoin ETF, but it's about making it more scalable ultimately. Yeah, so we, we've, um, we did this in the research is that um, the layer twos um, for Bitcoin is a pretty interesting phenomenon. We've seen a lot of development in it in the last year. Um, so we're starting to see a lot of investments happen there as well. Um, you know, Bitcoin historically was just a digital store of value and maybe some for payments. Now you're starting to see these layer twos that enables programmability and turning Bitcoin really into a, a computing platform very similar to Ethereum. And with that, you can have all these applications be built on it, DeFi, NFTs, gaming, uh, stable coins. So you're starting to see that come to space. So this year, you know, with the spot Bitcoin ETFs, 
with the having happening in April, and I think you know Bitcoin becoming this computing platform. That's a very strong bullish case for Bitcoin. Robert, we're bang in the middle of one queue. And in the context of the money flowing into companies in the crypto industry broadly, we, fa- we focus so much on how tough it was last year. Are you seeing any green shoots in, in 1Q about the, the, the kind of trajectory for at least VC backing of crypto startups? Yeah, definitely. I think the theme that you're going to see um, in this next cycle is what are the real world uh, use cases for crypto? Um, so we're looking, we see a lot of tokenization. We talked about this in the past. You know, that was a huge theme last year. Um, you know, we talked about physical infrastructure. So DPIN is another area we've seen a lot of investments, especially now with AI training, um, using compute power to, to do that. We saw uh, tomorrow or uh, together AI, they raised this huge round, a hundred million dollar plus round last quarter. Um, and also um, incentivized marketplaces. So marketplaces that uses tokens to, you know, like a brain trust um, to, to let, um, users come on and, and have tokens to facilitate the way that they transact online. So you're going to start seeing a lot of that. We're very seeing a lot of investments in that, and that's what investors are focused on. These things have fundamental business models. They're more durable, and then the, they, they have a path to scalability. All right, PitchBook crypto analyst Robert Lay, great to have you on the program. Thank you. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, we're going to discuss how one SaaS platform is helping hourly employees access their childcare subsidies. Merza, co-founder and CEO Seren Zhao, joins us next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. the maze that is government childcare subsidies. That is now with the help of a SaaS platform. Ms. Merza is promising to do that, having just closed a $3.3 million round. Merza co-founder, CEO, Siran Sao joins us for more. And Siran, just go through how hard ultimately the problem is and how a SaaS platform is the best way to fix it. Yeah. So let's start with how childcare and work are so deeply intertwined. So the top reason parents quit their jobs or cut back on hours is childcare. Mm. 
40% of parents are in debt over childcare. So when we zoom out to that tangled web that you're referencing, we're talking about billions of dollars allocated each year to help low-income families access the childcare they need to work. And yet only about 20% of those families are getting those dollars. So what's happening here? It's really varied and fragmented across the country. So for example, a family of four here in New York making 65K a year would have access to government subsidy. That same family in Pennsylvania would not. Mm. The family here in New York can use those subsidies to pay grandma. So if you work the night shift, that's pretty critical. But then a family, that same family in Ohio, wouldn't be able to. So when it comes to a nationwide employer trying to solve this for their employees, it is such a tangled web. It's really hard. That's where SaaS comes in. Okay, so tell us a little bit about who is using this platform already that you built. Yeah, so we're really excited to be working with a global food service company supporting their hourly workers. And this means, you know, the impact is pretty huge. For a worker who makes 35K a year on average, that extra $10,000 or so in government childcare subsidy is life changing. Saren, getting publicly available funds is so difficult in so many different industries. You know, there are specialist VC firms that only back companies like yours that do this. How does the the technology work? How is your SaaS platform able to expedite something that everyone knows moves painfully slowly? Yeah. So at the core, for families, we make it beautifully simple, brutally simple. We take a few easy pieces of information, like how many kids you have and how old they are, what's the number of folks in your household, what's your household income, and then based on where they live, pinpoint very specifically what the eligible, what the programs they're eligible for, and then we, through the beauty of SAS, make it as easy as possible to apply. Our dream and where, what we're doing is one click, it's just like checking out online. And you've got the backing to prove it thus far with that 3.3 million coming from the likes of Firework Ventures as well as Portage. We thank you for the time. Merza co-founder, CEO, Siran Sao. Meanwhile, look, let's just stick with technology's impact on families. This time, though, kids and smartphones. What started as a WhatsApp group for local parents who wanted to hold off on buying their kids' smartphones is quickly turned into a national movement in the United Kingdom, amassing thousands and thousands of like-minded parents launching more than 50 regional groups across Britain. Joining us now is one of the founders of Smartphone Free Childhood, as it's called, Claire Fernhoff. And Claire, I'm really interested in ultimately your driver here. You must have kids of a certain age that are demanding smartphones and you're trying to find a way of navigating that. Exactly. I've got a seven and a nine-year-old and I was sort of becoming increasingly horrified about the fact that actually in a couple of years the norm is that my child will my daughter will get a smartphone and I just felt like this is all the evidence is telling me this is not going to be good for her Um, but equally all the evidence is telling me that actually this is what everyone does and I felt like this was just not something I wanted to do Um, and so yeah I set up a group just over a week ago there were two of us and we thought we'd just it would just be us, but we would, you know, kind of share some tips and resources and get some solidarity maybe with a small group. And as you said, it's gone completely viral and thousands of people joined overnight. Um, and we've realized that actually we're not alone in feeling like this. 
Um, and actually, a lot of people are clearly really, really worried about this too and really want to talk about it together. I mean, your leading stat is almost 100% of 12-year-olds have a smartphone. And I wonder what ultimately you think you can achieve through this. Interestingly, you're using technology to kind of try and fend off technological use by your children. But what do you say to the investors that listen to this show or those that are backing Apple to keep on selling smartphones or social media to keep on targeting all age ranges? I think what I would say is that actually it's absolutely fine for children to have a phone, but investment needs to be put into a what we would call a brick phone or a dumb phone for children. Um, smartphones are not good for them. We know now we have enough data because the people who got smartphones as children are not adults, and we know that the younger a child gets a smartphone, the worse their mental health is. It's very clear in the evidence. So I think the investment needs to switch into giving really cool brick phones for children that they can text and call on, um, but they don't need to do any more than that. Uh, in our, From my perspective, the only reason a child needs a smartphone is because everyone else has got one, and that is the norm that we are trying to change. Uh, Claire, I, I am not a parent yet, but I was once a child, believe it or not. Uh, what, what I'm struggling here with is what is the principal concern? Is it the hours of usage, or is it the risk that, that parents feel their children are exposed to because simply a smartphone gives access to the internet? So I think there are three main risks here. Number one is the impact it has on mental health. It, you know, it triggers anxiety. You know, using smartphones, we know it has a range of impacts on, on well-being. Um, it's also about what we would call the opportunity cost. So it's the things that children are not doing. So in recent years, we've switched from a play-based childhood to a screen-based childhood. Uh, and we know that all children, of course, if they have the choice between playing outside and a screen, they go for the screen. So it's the things that they're not doing, which is, is really, really worrying. And it's also the, the huge amount of content that they are opened up to, which they are not ready for. You know, they are now seeing the most shocking things um, on on smartphones and I think actually parents are quite a lot of parents are not aware of what their children are looking at and they're seeing right. images that they, they can't unsee essentially uh, Claire I, I would note that if it's an iPhone or even a Samsung phone there are very clear parental control instructions on the websites of those companies that parents can use I, I Caro did a great job of setting out the movement incredible what you did in a short space of time has anyone in the UK government or a representative from Apple or a representative from Samsung reached out with you to try and work with you on this We've had a lot of, yeah, we've had a lot of MPs coming forward, so politicians from the UK um, wanting to talk to us about it. Uh, we haven't had any tech companies get in touch yet. But what we want to do is work with the tech companies and say, look, this is actually a great opportunity. Design a really cool phone that every 12-year-old wants. It doesn't need to have internet on it. It can just be a cool, you know, whatever brand you want. Um, but at this moment, no, we haven't had anyone reach out. What we're doing is just empowering parents. You know, we want the change to come from parents themselves. And then we believe that schools, government, tech companies will all follow if we vote with our feet. I cannot tell you how much of our time is taken up discussing among friends about what to do about this at the moment in this critical ages of children. So fascinating to bring it to our attention. Maybe we should call it Brick Phone Childhood, the co-founder of Smartphone Free Childhood. We thank you, Claire Fernihuth.
13F filings revealed that hedge funds bought into some of the biggest tech names in the fourth quarter to chase what has been a scorching rally fueled by growth in AI. Let's go out to Bloomberg's Hema Palmer in New York. You look across the headlines and the data, which tech names were hot and which tech names were not. Yes, so top tech names, Amazon, NVIDIA, Intel. These were some of the most popular buys that we saw in the last quarter of last year. Nearly 15 million shares of Amazon was bought in the last quarter. On the flip side, Meta, one of the least popular stocks, a lot more selling on that. But that may be more because of portfolio management, people wanting to reduce their position if if the stock did really well, um, or taking profit. So it may not necessarily be a bullish bet. Uh, Nike and Pfizer, also popular sells. Interestingly, we have seen some other sales and some big share reaction on the back of it. I think of what Berkshire Hathaway is selling down on Paramount more broadly. Yes. Where, where is sort of the force of direction going more on across all of the board here? Is there any theme that we can see? Yeah, I mean, I think generally you're seeing a, a, a pushing into the market again, um, more interest in some of the big tech stocks. A lot of these are household names that we all sort of know and we talk about a lot in the show. Um, but you're seeing sort of, you know, if we look at Code 2, for example, mm-hmm. there was a decent amount of rotation in their portfolio. They took 29 new positions. They sold 15. Um, Salesforce was one of their bigger buys. It's now their 11th biggest holding worth about $500 million. So that's pretty sizable. They took a new stake in Apple. Um, on the flip side, if we look at Tiger Global, there really wasn't a whole lot of activity. So you do see a disparity between different firms and how they examine the space. Um, they only bought two new stocks. They sold out of 11. The ones they did buy were relatively small, uh, small stakes. So you do see some dispersion right. too. A real quick hammer. What's going on with Viking? Yeah, so Viking, they do some tech stocks, but they've also done something really interesting. They were got out of their meta position entirely. Um, that was a stake worth about a billion dollars. So it's a pretty sizable move there. Um, they ramped up their position in Progressive, which is an insurance company. So they do non-tech stuff too, and they ramped that up by about five-fold. So another significant uptick there. Absolutely fascinating. We love how you managed to break it all down for us and look at the rally that Meta's had, as you are saying. Maybe some needed to rebalance their portfolio. Hema Palmer, always great to have some time with you on these 13Fs. Ed, what's interesting is NVIDIA was not only bought, but it's also having to file its own 13Fs. It's actually a buyer of companies, SoundHound AI, absolutely spiralling because of it. And it's putting billions of dollars in the private markets as well. It's been very active in recent quarters. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Uh, recap on the pod wherever you get your podcasts we are everywhere this is Bloomberg Technology from Silicon Valley to Wall Street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of AI adoption look like which companies from big tech to startups will dominate and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie I'm Emily Chang Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.